This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Mikkel Dack, Assistant Professor of Modern European History at Rowan University and Director of Research at the Rowan Center for the Study of the Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights. We're discussing his book, Everyday Denazification in Postwar Germany, The Fragebogen and Political Screening During the Allied Occupation. After the Nazi defeat, the Allied powers subjected Germans who participated in the war to 131 question test. The purpose of this questionnaire was to determine the extent of guilt in executing the crimes of the Nazi regime. Mikkel thoroughly examines this period of denazification, highlighting the usage of this notable document that is often forgotten today. Mikkel, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Great. Thanks for hosting me, Caleb, and for giving me the opportunity to share some of my research with the New Books uh, community. Of course, you know I, I think this is definitely you know the it, the type of book that people all across the the network in in, in history and in German studies and and in American studies and various channels will find really fascinating. Uh, and, and you really do highlight uh, a, a document that that isn't written about much in in, in the English language. Uh, but before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm originally from Canada, from Western Canada, um, and I did all of my education there and in Germany. And I've always had an interest in German culture and history, but uh, but not through my family or, or, or through the language, uh, knowledge of the language. So um, I think for many, you know, perhaps it's a common gateway to German studies and that I, I had a, uh, a specific interest in military history. Um, but also, I've always, as far back as I can remember, studied psychology, especially social psychology. In fact, I have a degree in social psychology as well, in addition to history. But I did my doctoral work at the University of Calgary in Alberta, my hometown. And uh, I worked with Annette Tim, who is a fantastic scholar of uh, political culture and gender history, German history. Um, and Cal- yeah, Calgary is really a kind of a, a fantastic place. It was for me. It was a good home for me because um, <clears throat> on one hand, it, it, it is a it has a reputation of being a, a an excellent uh, military history program, um, really kind of traditional military history, you might say, a lot of tanks and tactics. But um, but also because I was under the supervision of Annette, who is um, kind of a more uh, well-rounded historian of, of that period. And, and she kind of showed me, you know, kind of a, made me appreciate the nuances of war and society. So I had this this balance. And I think it was really kind of a, it felt very, very kind of I was very fortunate to be there. Um, but I also did some some uh, some of my doctoral research and, and education at the Free University in Berlin, uh, where I lived for, for two years and also Helmut Schmidt University in Hamburg, which is actually the the, the Bundeswehr, the military college for officers in Germany and in Northern Germany. So, and that was quite an experience because I'm a civilian myself, um, but and living with 14 uh, military officers, that's it's quite, an, quite an experience. I learned a lot about military culture and, and the history relationship with, the, with German history. 
So, um, so yeah, so after graduating from Calgary, I, I moved on to do a two-year postdoc at Syracuse University in upstate New York. That was in 2016, I began that. And, and then I found myself thereafter at Rowan University in New Jersey, where I am now. It's about 20 miles outside of Philadelphia. And there, uh, yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm an assistant professor of European history and director of, uh, of research for the Center of Study, for the Rowan Center for the Study of the Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights. And, and generally, my research is focused on uh, violent extremism, fascism, social memory, and ideological transformations after the war. So for this particular project, uh, it's obviously about the, the Fragebogen, uh, the the questionnaire that was administered to Nazis um, in the wake of World War II. Uh, but you know, in addition to this, you know, what what drew you to this source, uh, and and were there other key documents, uh, texts, archives that inspired this project? Yes. Yeah, so, so so the the, the infamous Fragebogen. And anyone who studies you know the the Second World War and its legacies, they in German literature, know about this this questionnaire, this much talked about, but no one really knows anything about it and its origins. Um, so yeah, so I'd heard about it. Whenever you you know read a, you know a scholarship on denazification or you know the the, the military occupation of Germany, this strange word Fragebogen keeps coming up. It's 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 really everywhere. You know whether whether you're studying or reading about DPS. Or you know, food rationing, or or post-war justice. It's it, it, you see this word. So so it always I, I knew about it, but I knew very little about about the details, the origin and the development of this program. But but furthermore, there's this, and I mentioned in the, in the introduction of the book, there is this very popular 1951 book by Ernst von Salomon called Der Fragebogen, and it's 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 you know an 800 page kind of autobiography of this celebrated author who was who happened to have been a far right nationalist and convicted criminal and um and so yeah so so most germans know about the fragebogen like germans today because of this book so so i knew it for that reason too but come but but how i found myself studying the fragebogen was actually by 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 happenstance i was in the national archives in washington and i was doing research for a related project but 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 different and and for all your listeners who who have done research at any archive you know often you find yourself it's the end of the day. You've pulled all the records, all the boxes. You've ordered all the boxes that you've that you intended to, and then you have you know a little bit more time. So you say, why not? Let's let's draw from this group of, of records that I, I don't know what's in there, and that's what I did. It was labeled miscellaneous occupation, and you know that sparked my interest. Of course, I had time, so I ordered a cart of boxes, and then there they were. You know these 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 questionnaires that everyone had talked about. There were thousands of them. And, you know, ironically, I, I, well, first I had to, I had to notify the archivist on site that, 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 that these were here and he promptly took them away from me and, uh, because they weren't formally declassified. And so I had to actually fill out a questionnaire <laughs> to get access to these questionnaires and, uh, it didn't take too long. And, uh, and yeah, and since then I've been on kind of a global treasure hunt, trying to track down more denazification case files um, these Fragebogen, but also the, you know, the, the documents related to them, um, kind of piece together a more grassroots kind of on the ground story of denazification. So before jumping into more about the specifics of the, the Fragebogen and the questions, uh, that were in it, uh, it, it was obviously the outcome of a, you know, a significant amount of planning, uh, for, uh, about around how to do denazification. So, 
you know, who are the individuals and what were the organizations responsible for the planning of denazification during World War II? Right. It, it's it's it, it, I'd like to say it was it's a straightforward question and answer, but it's it's really not. It's quite it's quite a crowded you know landscape of mostly mid-level planners and special committees and offices. <clears throat> but if if I if in an attempt to simplify it, and then plus we're talking here about four different allied powers. Um, so yeah, so there's a lot of there's really a convergence of, of different offices and with different objectives and visions for post-war Germany. But with regards to, to planning for denazification, I, I guess you could you could <clears throat> um, conceptualize it as such. There there was the high level policymakers, you know, that um, that kind of built the framework for denazification, or at least listed the lofty objectives for what denazification was was to look like and what it was to, to accomplish. Um, and you and you and and then these and this is Churchill and Roosevelt and, and Stalin and 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 their special committees. But but once these uh, denaz once the you know the 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 goals of denazification were set they had to be they they trickled down to these mid level planners who actually had to turn high policy into practical programs with detailed instructions and that with very little guidance I might say or oversight so it was very difficult for them um, and and because <clears throat> allied partnerships even between even within the Western Alliance Britain and the UK and France and others even though you know that it was never really kind of it was never seen as something long term um you know when when hostilities ended then you know the respective allied nations would go would would fall into their designated camps and occupation zones so a lot of the work that was done to plan for denazification was was seen as as temporary as short term and and everyone knew that there were multiple groups working on this simultaneously so that was problematic but but <clears throat> with regards to the fragebogen and really what kind of is the beating heart of denazification, the main tool of denazification for all of the allies, this questionnaire, it's um, the two main planning groups were, were one with the um, a, a small research group within the, the office of strategic services. So this was, you know, this is the, this is the predecessor of today's CIA and with, and which, which, um, uh, which was founded during the war and within their research and analysis branch, there was a small group of, mostly Jewish German emigres who had fled Nazi Germany um, just prior to the war and had landed in Washington. And, and they kind of came up with the idea of a, using a questionnaire for denazification purposes. Um, and and these, these are these are really kind of luminaries of the Weimar era. These are these are, are really kind of famous uh, thinkers and philosophers uh, like Franz Neumann and Herbert Marcuse. And um, so that's, that's the one group. They came up really with kind of the idea of, of screening the German people, holding them accountable, and also enrolling them in their own kind of political cleansing. Um, but the actual writing of the form uh, happened in London, across the Atlantic, in a group called the German Country Unit, and they were they were working under Schaeff, which was the the Western Allied um, um, headquarters uh, during the war, and uh, in their Civil Affairs Division. And this group, um, just like their OSS counterparts back in D.C., they were mostly civilians. They were academics. These are professors and grad students, um, but also engineers and lawyers and police officers, but but all really kind of civilian experts coming together, um, being advised by the OSS and ultimately producing this six page form uh, to to screen individuals for about their Nazi past. 
Uh, in the appendix of the book, you actually feature the the questionnaire, uh, and, and you know some of these questions are pretty pretty standard, but but there's also some some seemingly bizarre, unexpected questions. So, uh, you know, just for for listeners, obviously, I'm not going to ask you to uh, list every single solitary question that appeared, but but you know, what what was the purpose of the, of this questionnaire? Why why 131 questions? Why not you know 25 or or 300? Sure. And yeah, and if you could, if you could, I'd love to share the the meeting minutes of these different planning groups going through each question and asking just that, you know, kind of why this one, why not that? Um, or you know, I have some some you know verbatim documents that say like you know we should we should have four hundred questions, and others say we should have ten questions. It's always far too long, but they settled on one hundred and thirty one, or at least that that's the American form that I have in the appendix. In the appendix, um, there was there was a British form, there was a French and a Russian one as well. But the American one was by far the most important. Um, the the other three Allied armies they they um, they used it. They were kind of forced to use it as a template of sort to, to write their own. Um, but yeah, there, there are some questions you'd expect. You know, there's that like you said, there's in the first section of the questionnaire there was you know kind of basic biographical information like your name, what profession are you applying for, um, and maybe I should say that just kind of right away is that um, if if it's if it's unclear that in order to 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 gain employment after the war in a position, a civil servant position or any position that was deemed influential. So you're a teacher or a doctor or a secretary in an office, you know, an important government office, or you're a manager of a private business. Um, you had to fill out one of these forms and that, and that really equated to around a third of the German population. So that's why this, this form was circulated so widely and it's, it's so um, important, <clears throat> but um, yeah, some of the questions were, were standardized. They were, they were you know, kind of not too exciting. But then, but then, like you said, they, they, they get interesting and there's questions about education. You know, what school did you attend? Um, military service, you know, employment history and income. There were also questions about who did you vote for in, you know, the past three or four elections, you know, before the Nazis came to power. So they were asking questions about, you know, secret ballot democratic elections and who you voted for in those elections. They didn't have access to you know to that inf- to that information to cross check these these responses, but but they still asked them, um, and uh, and so yeah, so it's a question like that. I, I'll also mention that <clears throat> that almost every version of the questionnaire um, asked um, respondents to um, denounce family members or anyone they knew who were who were prominent Nazis. So they were encouraging denunciation to to you know for these respondents to be informants. Um, and, and to help kind of produce political intelligence. What, what was the primary way in which the questionnaire was distributed and administered? Was it uh, only when a person applied or uh, what was their more formalized process where where most people were expected to take it? Yeah, it, it, it varied between zones and, and varied over t- time too. However, um, usually how it would work is that um, you would show up at work at, at your, your place of employment one day and your manager or would say you have to fill out this form in order to keep your job or and or a military government officer, whether he be an American, British, French, Soviet, would show up at the office with a stack of forms saying you're filling this, this out right here, right now, under supervision, or you can take it home for three days and bring it back. Um, so like I said, yeah, any any kind of <clears throat> position deemed influential um but mostly in public and, and and private sectors but the but the vast majority of of Fragebogen respondents 
were uh, were civil servants, which in Germany was was you know a lot of people. Yeah, there's uh, there's that there, you mentioned there's 20 million respondents uh, to the Fragabogen, and you, you know this is obviously a ridiculous amount of of respondents. So so how how are these answers evaluated? Like you said, it was very difficult to cross you know cross reference or or check. Uh, the answers that people might have been given. So, so how were they? What was the evaluation process like? Yeah, it was it was difficult. It was complex. It was this this was an absolutely massive undertaking. You know, the quite likely the largest survey in human history up until that point. It was just it was incredible, right? There were there twenty million people were filling out these forms. You know, sometimes you know, um, I know one version of the Fragebogen called the Meldebogen, which is a shorter kind of registration form the Americans introduced. Um, they processed 13.5 million questionnaires in four months. Like it's it's just it's hard to imagine the the, the resources that had to have been dedicated you know, to that. But um, but yeah, so of course Germans were involved. The Allied soldiers, you know, they they, they couldn't do this on their own. Uh, furthermore, they didn't have the language capabilities to to translate uh, all of these submissions. <clears throat> so we have a lot of you know trusted, you know, vetted Germans who are employed by military governments who are, who are processing these questionnaires. In fact, there are cases where former Nazis were, were actually processing these forms because they just, they, they needed, they needed translators. They needed, uh, you know, they, they were short staffed. Um, and um, yeah, so, so it's, it's, there's a few cases like that where they, it's quite shocking the, uh, um, you know, kind of the process of evaluating these forms, but, but yeah, it, it took time. And, but really in the end, they couldn't all be investigated. These cases, they couldn't all be processed and, and denazification uh, kind of collapsed under its own weight. And, and by the time, you know, the denazification was declared done and over, um, there were hundreds of thousands of forms that had not yet been processed. So. You mentioned at the outset uh, Ernst von Solomon's 1951 novel uh, *Der which which uh, sold sold more than a quarter million copies in its first year alone. Uh, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about this book and why it was such a sensational hit in the wake of uh, the administration of these tests. Yeah, Ernst von Solomon is a is a really interesting character, um, and for those you know listeners who 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 studied literature, you know, he is really kind of even more popular topic and, and, and individual. So, but Ernst von Solomon, his, yeah, his, his most famous book is, is Der Fragebogen. And it was, the, it was the best-selling book in West Germany for the entire decade of the 1950s. So it, it's just, it really was sensational and it didn't just go away, right? It, it wasn't just this, you know, this blip, this, this, this bestseller for the first few months or that first year. Um, it was it was still selling, you know, off the shelves quickly right up until the early 1960s. And in fact, the publisher, um, I think last year, two years ago, um, released the, I think, 14th edition of Death Rock of Bogan. So it's still selling. Right. And um, it's an ebook now. So. <clears throat> but yeah, so this this is an 850 page um, you know, part autobiography, part kind of political diatribe, just this this. It drones on and on. You can you you can get how I feel about this 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 book. Like he he's a celebrated author even before this book came out, and that's why one of the reasons it was it, it sold so well. And he is a good writer, of course. But but yeah, he he uses this he uses the the Fragebogen questionnaire as to to structure his book. So so every question of the 131 point form, um, he he answers it in the in the Fragebogen book to, to really kind of to 
talk about his life experiences, his upbringing, but also to talk to to reject the force fed politics of defeat and uh, and to really condemn the uh, specifically the American occupation and denazification program. You also discuss in this book the sort of experience of the average German German citizen, uh, you know, what denazification was like. So, you know, for for the average person, what was what was the questionnaire like? And, and I suppose what was the uh, you know the barometer that was used to decide how much participation in the Nazi effort uh, was sufficient to rule someone out of uh, of leadership positions? Obviously. You know, acknowledging what you just said a moment ago that, you know, they had to employ some former Nazis to to even work on the questionnaire itself. Kind of the typical experience of denazification is was in filling out forms. It was paperwork. Um, you know, we usually when we talk about this major campaign after the war to eradicate militarism and ultranationalism from Germany, you know, the, the you know, the first kind of point is usually, you know, the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. Um, maybe we'll talk about, you know, banning Nazi parties, the Nazi party auxiliary groups, or destroying swastikas, symbols, or, or legislation. And this is all part of denazification, depending on how you define it, but that it, it's all part of that. But but by far, you know, um, without a doubt, the vast majority of, of resources went towards screening individuals for employment using uh, these questionnaires. Um, in fact, you know, the the... In their archives, you know, I came across this really great document um, by the British military government where they calculated in 1948 all the money that they it was mostly estimate, but but they but they they had detailed statistics about how much money and resources and manpower and hours went into denazification. And they calculated about 97% of, of their resources went to these these darn questionnaires, right? So this this is denazification if 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 you Defined in kind of narrow sense, right? Um, so yeah, so so for most Germans, the vast majority of Germans who were subject to some kind of denazification proceeding, it was filling out forms, you know, waiting, um, usually with a lot of anxiety about about for your questionnaire to be reviewed and evaluated, and then to hear if you were going to be employed tomorrow, right, or the, the next week. Um, so um, sometimes you would have to face an actual tribunal. A civilian tribunal, especially after denazification was transferred to uh, trusted German authorities around 1946, um, and and hundreds of thousands of Germans did face these civilian tribunals. But again, they had to fill out a questionnaire before appearing in court in this, these these uh, these hearings. But um, yeah, for the vast majority of Germans, this this was it. It was filling out forms, um, hopefully waiting patiently, but but often not, understandably so, and uh, to seeing if you were. Uh, permitted to be a part of this new post-war, you know, kind of democratic Germany. What were the major psychological and, and social consequences of denazification uh, on both East Germany and West Germany? Right. So, yeah. So, so the immediate consequences of denazification of screening, if, if you, if you, you know, you, you, you failed your, your Fragebogen, as, as it was said, you, uh, you know, you lost your income, you lost, you lost your job. Um, Sometimes you, depending what zone you're in, you, you lost your pension too, which was a big deal. Um, however, yeah, there, there were social and psychological consequences as well. But I should also mention that that for a lot of Germans, you know, filling out uh, the questionnaire was was a, was a positive experience because 
it led to them being more employable, right? If, if, if you were a non-Nazi or even an anti-Nazi when there weren't many, but if, but if you were, could prove that you were an anti-Nazi or you just had not participated, you know, in, in the, the regime, then you really had your pick of what job you want, you know, you wanted, um, you know, that you, you were on the fast track to promotion, you know, you, you would almost certainly become a manager in your office. So, so I, I should kind of say that, um, first and foremost, and, and a lot of jobs opened up for these people, you know, they could work in, they could work for the military government. Right. However, yeah, for, for millions of Germans, it was not a good thing. And, and then, yeah, not only did they lose their job and their income and the ability to support their families, um, but you know, it, was, it had a psychological blow. It, they, they, you know, like I said, if you were filling out a questionnaire, you were, you were in a position of influence, often of prestige. So um, by losing your job, you, you know, you, so, you know, you lost your social standing in some degree. So you have small town doctors, you have you know, university professors, um, and, uh, and, and suddenly you no longer have that status, that title. And, um, and, and plus, you know, you have this mark that, that you are a, a, an active Nazi, as they were called, or even a Mitläufer, like a fellow traveler, someone susceptible to peer pressure, right? And, 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 you know, and yes, a third of the country or a quarter of the country fell into one of these categories, but it didn't make you feel much better. Like I, I've read, you know, hundreds of accounts by Germans after they had been released from their job, kind of lamenting their past political decisions, you know, also a lot of anger too, but, but really ashamed, right, of, of what they had gone through and, uh, and kind of their new status in the post-war world. The, the book's obviously very, very narrowly focused, but just considering the the long run effects of denazification, uh, you know, it, it seems that you know, looking looking at today, obviously there, you know, there there still are uh, you know some far right uh, movements in in Germany, uh, but for the most part, it looks like this this denazification uh, procedure taken was extremely successful. So, what what is your sort of read on on? Uh, the Fragebogen. Obviously, you know, one would hope that that something like this would would never need to be used again. But but do you think that that it was mostly successful? Yeah, that's yeah, that's the million dollar question. And and I I, sh I should say <clears throat> I tried very hard not to answer that question in the book, but uh, because I I set out to tell a history of kind of human experiences and like and really grant agency to the to the you know, the, the occupiers and the occupied who, who, who shared the same space. And, and because people have been trying to answer that question in the scholarship for debt for decades. And, um, but you know what, it's unavoidable, especially when introducing this new source into the, into the investigation, this, you know, this, this question. So, yeah, so of course I, you know, I, I have thoughts about it and, and I, and I do um, kind of deliver a verdict as it were um, in the book's conclusion, but yeah. So essentially I, 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 I've, concluded that, that that i you know that this questionnaire was inherently flawed it absolutely was it was it was short-sighted it was it was contradictory it was complex it was and it really represented a collision of ideas and objectives of the various allied armies and offices within each each nation <clears throat> so yeah so i could i could spend 10 minutes or so telling you the many reasons why this was a flawed document and 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 happened. It was kind of destined to fail. But that being said, and then to your question about looking forward, looking even to today, um, I think you know the Fragebogen and denazification accomplished you know a, a fair bit. Um, and I and I don't think the fact that that I don't think it's it's I don't think it's just coincidence or or or, or happenstance that that 
that Germany today is a leader in Western democracy. You know, I don't, th I don't think that's inconsequential. I, I think that it is tied to this, this history and these activities. Um, but to give you, to, to try to give a short answer, I'd say that the questionnaire, what, what the questionnaire did do, one of its positive outcomes, and, 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 I, and I hope, I'd like my readers to kind of pause and think about this seriously, that, you know, despite this political transformation being largely superficial, um, and and these these answers being kind of contrived, like I you know, still this questionnaire made people sit down and reflect on their personal history, on their individual their, their accountability, um, and even if they lied to themselves and to the denazification agents who reviewed their case, they still went to great lengths to kind of to to drive a wedge between them and national socialism. They 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 you know millions of collective hours were spent trying to write. Nazi Nazism out of these people's lives through these questionnaires, right? You know, may have acted as a blank canvas to to create kind of a, a falsified and and, and non you know, non existent history of these individuals, but still, you know, they walked away from the process this this kind of the shared right of right of passage, as I call it, with um, with the new identity and really trying to get far far off away from this uh, from this ideology in this in this regime. So I, th I think it did have like a, a lasting effect. It made it, it wasn't the the outcome that, that was desired. It didn't go as far as, as we had all hoped, but um, but it was an important first step in kind of a, a, a I think a real kind of substantial transformation. Uh, in the book, you also you have a, a case study, Chris Hersfeld. I might have butchered butchered that pronunciation, uh, but I, I was going to talk about this particular story just to kind of give an example of what the uh, the process might have been like. It's in it's in the German state of Hesse, which is kind of in central, um, I guess, West Germany. It's it's uh, after nineteen forty nine. It was in it was in you know, the Federal Republic of Germany, West Germany. But yeah, I, I'll tell you, I, I before while writing the book, I you know like as we as we do, we go to these conferences and we share chapters or you know kind of developing ideas and. People kept asking me, you know, where's the case study? Where's the case study? Um, you know, you, you need to have some kind of analysis of, of on the ground experiences, and they were absolutely right. And so, so I gave in, and and I went back to the archives, and and also I was fortunate enough to have the the help of a whole army of RAs, my students, to 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 crunch data with me. But, but anyways, yeah. So so I decided on Hirschfeld, which is a a, a small uh, district in in like I said in the state of Hesse. It wasn't before the war. It wasn't particularly, or before I should say, 1933. It wasn't uh, really kind of a overwhelmingly pro-Nazi district. Um, they've usually voted for the Social Democrats, but um, but when the Nazis did come to power, they um, they embraced most people in, in the district embraced Nazism kind of wholeheartedly. But um, but the reason that the, but so it, it was so. It was kind of a what I saw. You know, if, if there's such a thing as a typical, you know, kind of case study, you know, sample study, then this I'd say this is it. But also the records, the denazification records for Hirschfeld are available at the National Archives in Washington, and I also have a you know kind of a working relationship with the archives in the in the city of Bad Hirschfeld and the district today, and and they were very helpful in um in kind of in, in sharing records and, and different materials. So. But what happened here is that, uh, yeah, it, it, in this this supposedly you know typical German county district, uh, <clears throat> you know thousands. I reviewed one hundred and eighteen 
individual case studies, people who were denazified uh, immediately after the war. And yeah, and I extrapolated the data and and compared it with with other research and looked at demographics and uh, outcomes of their of their of their their cases. And it really is kind of a fascinating snapshot of, of what denazification looked like, you know, in the field, on the ground, in practice. Um, and yeah, and so some of the kind of just really quickly, some of the some of the findings was that, well, first of all, um, out of 118 initial people who were denazified in, in the county, only two of them were women. Um, 116 of them were men. And, the, and of that 116, the majority were middle-aged, middle-class, educated men who already ha- held, in, uh, you know, kind of important positions in, in mostly in government or in civil service. I believe there were maybe just 10 or 12 cases where people were applying for new jobs, mostly with military government. So, yeah, so right away you see a disparity there in gender. Um, so that was that was that was noticeable. Um, furthermore, you see a lot of opportunists, you know, individuals who had joined the Nazi Party, um, at least according to them, because they wanted advancement in their in their professional life, in their, in their workplace. They wanted that promotion. They wanted to they wanted job security. So you see a lot of that. But the other noticeable trend is that while military government dismissed more than half of these individuals from their jobs in 1945, um, and I think rightfully so, because you know, you, you know, I've learned a lot about these people, these individuals and, and, and their political past. But, um, but when the um, German civilian staffed tribunals began operating in, in the county um, in 1946, they, uh, they pretty much reviewed all these people again and, and all but two were uh, permitted to work in their chosen profession. So, uh, so you see kind of this reversal of, of denazification actions just one year after the Americans had had dismissed them. So, so yeah, so that was that was interesting to see, but it really is a a, a fascinating case study. I, and I got to speak to a lot of people in Hirschfeld, uh, you know, over the last few years and hear about their their family and, and the stories they have been told. And I didn't that didn't make it into the book, but uh, but maybe in like a future project. And with, with the completion of this particular project. Uh, you know, something that we were discussing before the interview was just uh, how how little, at least in the English language, little work there seems to have been done on the Fragabogan. So, uh, you know, what is your sort of hope for for future projects, future research projects uh, that look into denazification? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, I there's a lot here, and and I'm like I'm I'm, I'm moving on more or less from this this topic, but I am hopeful that. Uh, well, I know there are, there are at least a dozen other people who are now working on this, um, including four or five PhD students who I, who are not under my supervision, but I'm I'm assisting them at their various institutions around the world, mostly Germany and England. Um, but this is a, an incredibly rich source, and it's still and it is like very new. Um, in, in fact, the Russians still haven't released their questionnaires. Apparently, you know, I, I haven't confirmed this, but but colleagues who work on, on this subject and work in Moscow, they they tell me that, that they're under lock and key, hundreds of thousands of these Russian questionnaires. So so there's that too. We'll see when when, when they're released, if ever. But um although I don't think anyone's kind of rushing to go do research in Moscow right now. But but uh but no there's it's not only is this kind of the you know the the centerpiece of denazification, this is kind of the fundamental tool and therefore it should be studied as as such as a military government instrument and device and mechanism but 
this these are ego documents this is this is the largest collection of autobiographies from nazi germany right it's it's not just 131 questions with 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 short responses there are pages stapled to every single questionnaire where the respondent talks about his or her you know kind of um her biography about their you know their motivations for joining the party or why they are actually a victim or why they are a rescuer or a resistor of the regime a lot of justification um you know a lot of uh emotions come through so these 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 are these these are really quantitatively and qualitatively rich sources and so and and as the more i review them and work with them the more i think wow this this is valuable for so many different kind of avenues of research um family history I, every week i receive an email from someone in germany at, like trying to find information about their their grandparent or grandmother through these questionnaires um ancestry.com is always hounding me for information this is there's you know genealogy research there's there, there's a lot here and so yeah so I, like i said i'm advising four or five or helping four or five students in, at different universities um you know working through these records and uh, and say i'm hopeful it's going to be it's exciting to see where where we end up yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the the potential, you know, if someone were to, you know, get get all of these all 20, 20 million responses, uh, and be able to use some sort of a, you know, a, an AI tool to go through and find different commonalities and the answers and responses would be incredible to just get a window into what what led people to become Nazis. Like I, I think so much of, uh, you know, Christopher Browning's uh, book about uh, ordinary. Uh, ordinary, I think it was ordinary men, um, you know, just about what drew just, you know, single battalion uh, to, to joining and to committing the crimes that they did. It's just, you know, so such a valuable thing to understand so that we can prevent things like this in the future. Um, you know, as, as far as, uh, you know, not just this project, but just your future work, I'd love if you, if you could share a little bit about, you know, what, what, what your next project is. Sure. I'm, I'm working on two papers right now, kind of, smaller side projects. One is the role of testimony in shaping family and national narratives um, concerning concentration camp liberation in the United States. So um, this is largely an oral history and involves interviewing Americans from three different generations and how the story of liberation has been told and kind of worked into our kind of like the the narrative of World War II and, and the American involvement. So that, that's a small project. I'm also working on a kind of an institutional history of the Fort Ontario Emergency Refugee Shelter, which is the only refugee camp in the United States during the war, where um, mostly Jewish refugees were were housed, but later interned um, by the Roosevelt government. So that's another project that I'm that I'm kind of slowly chipping away at. But but the larger kind of book project that I have been really kind of dedicated to the last two years already and uh and we're finally making kind of real headway is is tentatively titled fighting fascism it's a, a global the global, the global campaign to eliminate far-right extremism from after world war ii so i've taken you know my my interest and expertise in german history and i've taken a pretty large step back and and now i'm um comparing it to defascistization campaign in italy um denazification in austria and so-called democratization in japan so, you know, as while I was studying the Fragebog and, and just denazification in general in Germany, you know, I, I quickly learned that that all of this was not really new or innovative. It, 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 it Much of it was being adopted from Italy, what had happened a year or two before. 
and that, that all of these kind of de-radicalization or democratization campaigns were all connected. So, you know, but in, instead we were kind of, we, we, we usually investigate these post-war histories as really kind of siloed case studies, you know, because of linguistic limitations and, you know, so many archives and all of these things, but, but kind of the war against fascism after 1945 was a global one. It's a, it a global story. And so I'm, I'm looking to tell that and, uh, and it, it's ambitious, but, but I'm making it way. Yeah. There's, I mean, there's, there's all sound like, sound like difficult, but, but, uh, you know, fascinating projects. Uh, well, Mikkel, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. Uh, it was great speaking with you about everyday denazification in post-war Germany. Uh, have a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me.